Hello people, sponsoring us today are Westway Nissan, the UK's largest Nissan dealership, selling all sorts of vehicles, large and small, private and commercial, they also don't only sell them, you can also get them the hire. They can give you up to 20% off vehicles if you are a member of the armed forces or if you are a veteran and they also for January 2019 have got some exclusive deals going on you can save a few k on your purchases so get on to Westway Nissan get into one of their dealerships and have a look they've got lovely cars they're good people the managing director of the dealership is ex-military himself um, and uh, and his boy one of his sons sadly lost his life in Afghanistan who was serving with three power so strong ties to military with West Nissan. They also like to employ ex-military where they can. So if you're looking for work, if you need some uh, uh, employment advice, um, you're not sure what to do, whether you're thinking about getting out or you're already out, give Westway a call. So give them a call if you want a car, if you're looking for a car, if you need something for your business, or if you need some advice on employment, they could sort you out either way. Westwaynissan.co.uk and they're all over social media as Westway Nissan. On to our next sponsors, Rugby for Heroes. They're a not-for-profit organisation founded by a bunch of keen rugby players out of the Old Levantonians Rugby Football Club. That's what they're based out of. They organise fundraising events to raise money for a range of armed forces charities, including 353, Help the Heroes, the Royal British Legion and the Soldiers Charity. They've raised over £100,000 for those benefit charities since they were formed in 2009 and they were formed to commemorate the loss in action of Private Joe Whitaker, who was a four-par lad serving out there in Afghanistan. They've got their next event, big event happening on the 10th and 11th of May of this year, 2019. It's a beer and gin festival at the Old Lemontonians Rugby Football Club. That's a Friday and a Saturday. Friday evening, festivities, Piss up Saturday, much the same, but they've also got a call it an exhibition match going on. It'll be the old Lemontonians team against a bunch of ex military players. And I have been roped into this myself. I'm bringing myself out of retirement. So if you want to come along and see me uh, put myself back into retirement with several injuries, come along on the 10th, 11th of May, the old Lemontonians. Rugby Football Club. Rugby, F-O-R-Heroes.org. Um, if you want them on social media, it's Rugby, number four heroes. Rugby for heroes. Cheers, fellas. Last but not least, Team Rubicon. A disaster response charity. Team Rubicon UK are formed almost exclusively of ex-military volunteers, but they have some fantastic civilian volunteers as well. Uh, the ex-military volunteers obviously earned their spurs in hostile character testing environments. Team Rubicon, their volunteers are known as grey shirts. They bring determination and hard-won experience to their humanitarian mission. Team Rubicon UK are one team with a bias for action, creating order in the wake of destruction. Right now, they are out in Indonesia and in various locations, helping out the people there who have been getting smashed by earthquakes, tsunamis, monsoons, you name it. At the last count, there's over 2,000 dead, 83,000 people displaced and half a million children affected. Uh, I think uh, for the latest issues going on there with the monsoons team rubicon deployed a team on christmas day those people get up their christmas to go out and help the people in indonesia but team rubicon can only support these people in their times of need and in the future in the uk as well as overseas as long as their funding allows uh, if you're able to donate to team rubicon please go to teamrubiconuk.org forward slash donate but you can also by going to teamrubiconuk.org become a volunteer uh, I am a grey shirt, i got a bunch of mates of grey shirts, and um, it is a fantastic organisation to be a part of. 
Really, really good. TeamRubiconUK.org. Do something good for people. If you can't do that, try and donate if you can. Thank you very much. On to the podcast, my guest today is Leveson Wood, uh, former member of three parachute regiments with the British Army, and now uh, author, adventurer, possibly call himself an entrepreneur, extravaganza, good-looking bloke. Um, his book, Arabia, is out now. I had the pleasure of reading it, and we uh, we chatted lots and lots about it. Fascinating conversation. Great guy, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Chower, with Leveson Wood. Leveson Wood, thank you, thank you for your time. Uh, I do appreciate it, and um, welcome, mate. Thank welcome. You very much. It's good to be here. Glad to have you here. <coughs> my, uh, my, uh, yeah, you're probably my most. Handsome guest, I think so, so far. <laughs> I Not doubt the most that. handsome person on a podcast. I can't. I can't. I can't, I can't myself there. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, sure you've had a few good ones. <laughs> in all seriousness, um, your book, latest book, latest book. Right. Yeah. So, how many books have you done now? How many? Um, well, this is number five, Arabia. and I've got another one coming out in a couple of months. Have you really? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, you have to, oh, you have to mention that, that because, bit, yeah. Right. So, Arabia. I don't. I don't. I'll be honest here. I don't normally read this kind of stuff. I don't. Um, but obviously, I know you sort of in the past, and um, and then you were coming on the podcast, and I thought, mm, I better, I better start reading. I got in the first, I literally for the second page, mate. Didn't, didn't I said didn't put it down. I was listening to it, um, so a few minutes in, and uh, Ali stuff, Ali stuff. <laughs> I'm just gonna stick on so I can get the sound on the. Uh, yeah, Ali, Ali stuff, mate. Um, two thing. Well, funny as well. The the. Are you, are you still in touch with the little bastard from the Nativity play? <laughs> I think I've got him on Facebook <laughs> somewhere. I don't know if he's read it yet. Uh, I'm a bit reluctant to uh, to see what my old uh, primary school friends think of it, to be honest. <laughs> no, but uh, mate, Syria. You started off in Syria, didn't you? Started in Syria and went through again towards the end. It was the sort of the first country and the the penultimate country as well on this journey. How did you? How, so how did you select the route to go that way and start and finish at that point? So... Well, when I, I mean, the initial idea for this journey was simply to go and spend some time in the Middle East. And then obviously when you're crafting a narrative and when you're coming up with a, a start point, an end point, kind of needs to have a reason to start. And for me, there were lots of reasons. Um, I'd travelled quite a lot in Syria before the Civil War. Um, I'd travelled through Iraq a couple of times. I, I, you know, I backpacked through there when I was a student. So there were lots of places that I could have started. I wanted to start in Syria because, you know, this was in the autumn of 2017 when I began the journey. Um, you know, height of the civil war. This ISIS still hadn't been defeated. In fact, people didn't know which way it was going to swing. So I thought, why not start on the edge of Arabia, so to speak, which was up in the Kurdish areas on the Turkish border. Um, and I wanted to do a full circumnavigation of the, the whole Arabian Peninsula, uh, which for me represents, you know, the heart of the the Middle East, hence the title. Um, <laughs> and then finish on the shores of the Mediterranean for, for for lots of other reasons. You know, Lebanon, you know, again, borders Turkey. You've got basically Turkey again to the north. Um, the Mediterranean Sea represents basically the edge of Europe. So it, for me, it was like this, a linear journey from kind of west back, sorry, from east back to west, but in a, 
bit of a roundabout way going around the the coastline of of this infamous region. Mm. Mm. The, is it the cut of, as I was li- as I was listening to it, oh, I did it on Audible, like I said. Um, there was bits in it where I, th- I it made me sort of even more happy. You were coming on the podcast. I, I tell you why, <laughs> because things like Israel Palestine mm. uh, and, and Syria as well. Yeah, where very complicated. <sighs> understatement, mm. uh, understatement, isn't it? I'd say especially with Syria, complicated. I mean, well, yeah, and, and Israel Palestine, but the place interests me. Syria, obviously, recently because we've. I suppose we both got mates who've been out and deployed. Um, I have a mate has got in civic capacity as well, mm. and and on different sides of the coin, and it's just that each can't work it out. But to have to be able to have to speak to you and and read about your exploits, as a person who understands the military side of things from your experience, and has a very well rounded knowledge and uh, knowledge of the current situation and his, history based on media and your education to then mm. your your experiences of actually being there and talking to those people it was um it was fascinating it's fascinating tell the uh how did you get hold of that guide in syria who took you through is it abu who was um, the guide in there was syria? there was a there was a couple well the, um for syria was um at the uh, at the end you mean nada which is the lady no, the first, the first. oh the beginning yeah so that was simply um a case of rocking up at the border and <laughs> bumping into a guy who was like I'll get you in. <laughs> Did you cross from Lebanon? So no, I crossed. I went in through the Fajr border crossing, which is on the the border between Turkey and Iraq. So you know, right into the mix. Um, that was the one place actually. You know, b- before I went into Iraq, I had to ha- get a fixer sorted because I knew that without yeah. having a decent fixer or at least a fixer, there was just no way of we'd get around. Whereas Syria, nobody was certain. Nobody had been into that northeastern part that we could get hold of. So there's no record of whether it was even possible. So we thought, yeah, there's only one way to do this. It's just pitch up, see what the, the guys say at the border. And, and the, actually, because I spent quite a lot of time with the Kurds and I knew a few of the, the key figures, I just did some name dropping and they let me in. <laughs> <laughs> did you, um, yeah, so your first, what was it? A couple, it was a couple of days in Syria, wasn't it? It wasn't very much. At the beginning, I, but I wanted, start, I, wanted, start, yeah, yeah, I wanted to yeah. start right on that Turkish border. Because for me, that represented the, the the beginning, you know, to sort of leave, um, to, to head from, you know, through the Kurdish areas into federal Iraq, which is obviously Arab. Because um, there's a lot of grey areas, you know, the Kurds, they're not Arabs, but um, they're all part of this bigger legacy. Yeah, it's a strange one. I've never been to Kurdistan, um, but I worked in Iraq. I obviously deployed to Iraq with military, and I, I worked in Iraq mm. doing private security. And the furthest north I really went was Baghdad and... and um, uh, Badra on mm. the east uh, on the Iranian mm. Iran Iraq border. But there's a trying to learn understand that Kurdish side of things. Um, they're getting ass whooped by Iraq, really. At that situation, it's not too dissimilar from Palestine In, mm. on a basic basic level. Kurdish autonomous region want to mm. be independent, can't be aren't allowed to be independent, mm. and they haven't got the military might to be able to. Six two fingers at Iraq. I think I don't know what's your no, understanding. I mean, the Kurds. I feel for them because they've been let down by every side. You know, they they were promised independence way back when, never happened. They were then, you know, basically subsumed into Greater Iraq, and their 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 lands have been chopped up. You know, ever since um, the aftermath of the First World War. You know, you you had the Kurds spread across <clears throat> Syria, Iran, Turkey, and Iraq. And is that where it first? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the I Kurds have always been 
you know, an independent people, but they've never had their own land. And, and they've always wanted one. They were promised one, never never materialised after the, the Sykes-Picot agreement, which I'm not going to go into the details of that. But there's always been this desire with the Kurds to have their own homeland. Turkey, I'll be honest, have been just dreadful. They, they You know, the, Turkey has been um, pretty bad in what they've done to, to the Kurds. Um, they classify... Um, you know all of those Kurd, all those Kurds down the southeast perimeters as terrorists. Um, the the Kurds in Iran surprisingly have had much more freedom and haven't really striven to have their own independence as much. In Iraq, though, you know they have been fighting. You know, well they had their own civil war back in the eighties, um, but now after certainly after two thousand and three, they thought that this was their big chance for independence, and they had high hopes. And they'd promised the people an independence vote, which happened literally the week after I got there. Um, but of course, it came to nothing because, you know, there were lots of bargaining chips on the table. And uh, and yeah, whether they get it, I don't know, maybe, but not certainly not for a long time. Yeah, uh, the, the obviously the oil is a big part of it, and and the, but they they seem to have within that region a hell of a lot of oil fields, but not just on the. Not just on the sort of extremities of of the of the region, they've got them quite in in depth inside as well. It's, it's an inland of where they claim mm. to, Kurdistan to be. Um, that I mean, that's half it, you know, to, uh, keeping all of that ground. But it's just a, pff, I don't know. I, but that, that whole that whole area, though, you know, like like you say, Iran, Turkey, Iraq, Syria, absolute absolute mess. I'm not sure. Was going good. Good. Sorry, going back to Syria. Mm. That. The the ISIS battle going on there, ISIS, Syria, US, and everything. That must have been ISIS must have been on a downturn then. Just they, they about, appear? yeah. I mean, the Kurds going just you know just bigging them up a bit because actually it was the Kurds who were right on the front line. I, I was in Kurdistan in 2014 as well, um, Sinjar, just after the just after ISIS had uh, done Mount that. Sinjar. Yeah, Mount yeah. Sinjar. Um, and I went to Mosul Dam and got to a place called Talafar. So I was, I was right on the, I was about five miles from Mosul city centre in 2014. That was when the, that was place was ISIS central. Yeah, I what mean, we were, well, I was embedded with the Peshmerga, so we were sort of just watching um, some of the fighting there. And, and, you know, the Kurds were, they hadn't been paid in six months, you know, and then these guys were still fighting because for them it was a total war. It was them or, you know, ISIS could have quite easily overrun that whole region mm. and no one knew at that stage which way it was going when i was there on this journey in 2017 um you know luckily the the americans had started to help out with the airstrikes and and there was a bit more of a presence on the ground but it was still the, the kurds were the ones doing the fighting um but they knew that to retake mosul the kurds couldn't be involved because they didn't want to be involved because the moment you have what the arabs see as foreigners going in and the kurds are very much seen as a different tribe they knew that you know they would be seen as the enemy, so that's when uh, that's when the Iraqi army was sent in. But again, they ran away. They left Mosul the first time round. You mean if the Kurds took Mosul, then yeah. they would be the target of Iraq? Yeah. So the Kurds yeah. said, "Look, we'll help out. We'll provide a perimeter force, and we'll go as far as the the Tigris River." But they didn't want to go any further. So that was when the Iraqis had to really step up to the plate. Um, but it wasn't the Iraqi, you know, for the most part, it wasn't the Iraqi army that, that, that retook Mosul and did most of the fighting. It was the Shia paramilitaries, some of them sponsored by Iran, were the ones that did most of the fighting against ISIS. Mm. And it goes to show some of the, the complexities and 
and the sympathies, you know, this, and it basically it comes down to sectarianism. You know, a lot of the Sunnis in places like Mosul supported ISIS, not be, not directly, but they were sympathetic. They wanted this Sunni caliphate for them because of this huge division between Shia and Sunni. Mm. So a lot of it is religious. A lot of it is simply power struggles in each of the villages and towns. You know, a lot of tribalism. Um, and it's the same across the region, same in Syria. So incredibly complicated. So, you know, to try and get that story across in, you know, the few pages of a book was 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 tough, part of the challenge. But, you know, for me, that's what it was all about, going to this really complicated region, shining a spotlight on it, showing it in something other than black and white, because it isn't black and white out there. And hopefully people will take something away from this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. How, how, when you, just from a practical point, when you're out there doing your mental flipping expeditions, mm. How do you turn that into the book? You, like, do you take a massive notepad here? Basically. Yeah, there, and write... And, and write daily notes, just keep a... Even just a page a day, but it, you, you remember most of it. You just need to keep a few names, a few quotes, point. where you are, how many miles you travelled, and it, it comes flowing back. So um, I don't write the book on the, on the job, but I no, do yeah, keep yeah. quite detailed notes. And obviously, because I'm filming it and taking photographs, it all helps to jog the memory. That's well, so quite a, a, a... Not a cleansing, that's not the word... Um, the, 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 like cathartic experience, yeah, cathartic, uh, but also sort of a pure experience mm. where you know you, when you like some of the things in there, where you well, you're going across when you end up going to Africa, not on a plan, yeah, definitely <laughs> in not. a dow going across there <laughs> in between flipping seasickness and the sailor and the, the sailors. Um, a lot of time you, yourself, you know, in, in, along with your thoughts, that mm. whole out, outdoor thing we were talking about before on one of the other podcasts, the whole outdoors thing. And to analyze what's been going on, where mm. you are, loving it most of the time, some of the time. <laughs> For this one, I did. I really enjoyed most of it. Um, and it was probably the biggest challenge. I mean, in terms of it wasn't physically challenging as much as the journeys I'd done, like the Nile or the Himalayas, but it was mentally challenging because I was going these, through these really difficult areas, didn't know whether it was going to, we were going to get permission. The whole journey, you know, was fraught with all sorts of complexities but i did really enjoy it because i i really wanted to this was the journey that i'd really been striving for for so long so yeah yeah where does it where does the adventure come from in you where does that come from um good question well everyone every little boy's got adventure not your little boy and i don't know <laughs> but the, sort of that expedition yeah. i know you're from from reading it you're like obviously a huge fan of people like t lawrence lawrence arabia and Thessinger. yeah um I think it was generally just as a kid reading their stories, probably watching a bit too much Indiana Jones on. You, know, you never watch too much Indiana Jones, mate, don't you? Yeah. But genuinely, I think it was the storytelling, you know, other people's stories, reading and, and realizing that there's something really powerful about stories, whether that's just literally watching a film, reading a book. But then I knew for as long as I could remember that actually we can all be the kind of hero in our own stories if, we're, if if only we take a few risks and actually go out there and do it you know and there's no reason you have to life doesn't have to be boring you can go and do this stuff you know that's all I did and I knew that to do it I just had to go and travel and see the world and, and that's what I did from quite a young age and obviously the army contributed to that uh, ability and the, and the sort of skills that you learn the contacts that you make you know all that side of things but but really it was just curiosity Mm. Was the military? Was you? Was you? Was you experience with the military? Even though you, you know, did things like Afghan and that. Was that? 
a little bit of an anticlimax for you in terms of an experience compared to what you'd done before and after? I wouldn't say it was an anticlimax. It was it was just very different. You know, all my other stuff before and after had been quite independent. I'd had the freedom, and I've always been my own boss apart from that few years in you know in in the reg. Um, so that was that was the only difference, really. You know, I guess it was weird rocking up to to three para. I'd already been to Afghanistan in 2004, having trekked across it as oh, part of another journey. And most of the blokes, most of the officers in the mess were like, what on earth are you doing, you, know, you idiot? And, and I could see it from their point of view because they just got back from Herrick 6 and they were like, oh, who's this arsehole who's just turned up to the mess? Herrick 4. And, Herrick 4 yeah. Sorry, Herrick yeah, 4. Yeah, um, and, you know, uh, it was met with a bit... I didn't tell anyone about it, but, people, you know, people got wind of the fact that I'd been to Afghanistan and stayed with the Mujahideen and I'd stayed with opium smugglers and trekked through, you know, Kabul and the Khyber Pass. And it was kind of met with a bit of hostility, actually, because I don't think people really understood why on earth you want to go and what in their eyes was to go on, go on, on holiday to Afghanistan. And, and I get that. But it definitely helped in during my sort of career with, with later on, um, both with when we deployed there in 2008 and, and, and subsequently. Um, but for me, you know, the, the, no, the army, I, I, I loved it. I, I had a great time. I, I really enjoyed um, Herrick 8. Um, but it was, it was quite a different experience. You know, the the, respons- the sense of responsibility, the camaraderie, being with the blokes, that's what I loved about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking about yeah, <clears throat> that, wait, that getting met with a bit of hostility of having been out there before. It's, I suppose that almost be down to, you know, you've got guys going, out, going on, a, on a combat operation. And in air heads, maybe it almost downplays the risk. So the I risk suppose gonna, so, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not the case, though. It depends on what capacity you're going out there. Absolutely. I, was, I wasn't in, you know, it wasn't dangerous when I was there, actually. 2004 was a, a sort of calm before the storm. didn't really kick off until 2006. Mm. So when I was there, perfectly safe to traipse across Afghanistan. Um, obviously, that changed. I wouldn't want to go then necessarily now to, to the same places. But, but, you know, you've got to remember, and that's what, I guess the, some of the focus of my journeys has been is that you can't tar a whole country with the same brush just because one area is affected by conflict. There's, there's vast parts of Iraq and Syria that are completely unaffected by conflict, even now. Mm. Afghanistan, you can go to the northeast and the Badakhshan and the Wakhan Corridor and you won't meet any Taliban. You'll, you'll, only, you'll meet farmers who'll look after you, you know, and it's, it's a perfectly safe place to go and visit. Yeah. Um, but... It's all too easy to to just mention the name of a country and say, why on earth would you want to go there? And part of the thing I think that is, I see my responsibility is is showing people that that's not the case. You can't it's you can't generalize with these things. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Um, did I was it in, was it in there that I read about Lebanon, or have I read that somewhere else? Lebanon are trying to push their tourism industry. I mean, Lebanon are and definitely should because it's. Stunning. I mean, that was where I, I finished the journey. Food's amazing. People are amazing. Food's amazing. There's there's great beaches. There's nightclubs. There's bars. There's beautiful wine. You know, vineyards. Great mountains. You can go skiing in Lebanon. And that's you know, it's still the Middle East. But skiing in Lebanon. Skiing. Yeah. There's what? great mountains. Really? Yeah. yeah stunning. Tell yeah. the missus. <laughs> Tell her we're on about something for a snowboard holiday. Lev said it's all right. <laughs> it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Um, and there's a lot of the old blokes working out there now. <laughs> I can fix you up. Yeah, I can, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, where were we then? Syria, Syria, Kurdistan. 
How long were you um, on that one? So on, on this Arabia, mm. you on the sorry on the previous expedition, it was all walking, wasn't it? So I walked the Nile, the Himalayas, the Americas, yeah. all Central America, and then the last televised journey I did was Russia to Iran. So that was starting on the Black Sea, going through the North Caucasus, through Chechnya, Dagestan, those sorts of places, and then finished in Iran. Um, and all the previous ones have been walking, but for this one, I wanted it to be more of a mix because what I'd realised is that the walking was great and it was a good device, you know, to show a, to do a journey in a in a really slow way, obviously. But it was that it done in such a way that you meet lots of interesting people. It, the physical element was kind of by the by; that was almost irrelevant. Yes, I wasn't. I was never doing it to break any world records. It was just a an interesting way of seeing a country. So I thought. For the, for the Middle East, I didn't want to walk for endless, you know, thousands of miles on empty desert roads, which is what there are, yeah. there's a lot of that in places like the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So I thought, actually, the, the best bits of these journeys are when you're with interesting people. So my kind of rules for this journey were to travel as the locals do. I, I wasn't like hiring cars or getting, you know, anything like that. It was literally just hitchhiking, walking, camels, donkeys, or on a couple of occasions, you know, jumping on the back of a tank, <laughs> going straight into the middle of the mix. <laughs> yeah, with, uh, with the bulldozer at the front. Yeah, exactly. I remember yeah. that bit. <laughs> yeah. So there was, it was just kind of like, by any means travel, but always with local people. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way to do it though. That's yeah. the way to do it. Uh, you, you got, it's, who was I talking to this? Who was I talking to this about? We were saying about people going away on holiday, be it like I went to Tunisia, Tunisia, oh, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago on, <clears throat> And I'm like you a little bit, very different to you, <laughs> like you a little bit in that I want to go to the country. It's nice having a resort there, being in a hotel, have access to the pool, but there's hills and mountains and there's people and mm. there's food. And you've got to get outside the walls and go out and just experience it. Otherwise, mm. what's, what's the point? What's the point? And, and, and going one step further than that, mm. you know, what you do, I, I'd love, you know, it'd be, be fantastic to go out and, do, you know, cut about, cut about, embed yourself with them, mm. embed yourself with them. Um, and tr- and try and almost pass off as one of the local. Just live like him, you know. Live like him. I saw. I the un- unfortunate thing with Audible is you don't get the pictures. Yeah. So when I picked up the book, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was I was looking at the pictures, mate. You got some good dress sense going on. Yeah, there. I can blend in if you try it. Yeah, yeah. You weren't as tanned as I thought you'd be, though. You had the beard going, mate. <laughs> did, you, did you buy that stuff out there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just pick up uh, pick up some local clothes and. And actually, I just I did actually manage to sort of pass myself off in places like Yemen. You know, grew a decent beard, wore wore a turban, and off you go. Where was the most? Which country did you did you find it the least friendly generally in terms of the just the people? Least friendly, because um, that part of the world, right? Mm. They're all pretty flipping accommodating. It's part of the religion. It's part of the culture. Yeah, like Afghanistan, Iraq. You meet, I met anyway, some of the nicest, most generous people you yeah. ever meet. Come in the house, have a cup of tea. Da, 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 da. You know what? All the places that I was kind of concerned about, all the places that have got bad, you know, press and stereotypes of being dangerous places like Syria, like Iraq, like Yemen, like Saudi Arabia, that's where I met the nicest people. Mm. People, you know, Lebanon, amazing, amazing people. It was actually the places that that tend to get a lot of tourists that, or more tourists that were less friendly and I have to say, you know, UAE going through like Dubai and Abu Dhabi, you don't you don't meet any locals. You don't meet the Arabs because well, one ninety five percent of the population is foreign, mm. foreign workers and expats. 
So the Arabs just keep sort of keep themselves to themselves. And Oman, because there is quite a bit of a thriving tourist industry, you know, people are trying to flog your stuff. So and that's one of the flip sides, and I guess one of the dangers of tourism and mass tourism certainly is that um, it does mean that the interaction between foreigner and local becomes a bit more transactional. Whereas in places that, you know, there is virtually no tourism um, or it's dropped off, like in Syria, there used to be quite a lot of tourism to Syria, but that's gone now. And, and yet, you know, amid all that conflict and violence, the people, you know, they, they view a foreigner or something, people really take you in and look after you because they, they know that the benefits of it. They know that, you know, hopefully one day tourism will come back. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing to see in, in some of the poorest places, well, like Yemen, everyone, you know, people just go out of their way to look after you. Yeah, strange, isn't it? I read, a, I read, a, I read a funny one about the UAE when I was out, I was out there for a, um, got stuck there for a couple of weeks waiting for a visa, and uh, it was that. So you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Over here, like, like I live in Warwick, and I go to Stratford upon Avon quite a lot. Shakespeare's birthplace was his birthplace. Hmm. Yeah, that's where his house was, anyway. Um, oh my god, that place is like Soho, mate. Is you, you go in there? It's just it's foreign, far east people, Chinese, Japanese, all of them, everywhere. Lots mm. of foreigners because it's full on tourism. So you walk in a shop, a gift shop, because uh, I was there. My missus walked in. She was after something for her daughter, and she went to the counter to pay for it. And the lady said, "Are you local?" And she said, "Yeah." So, and, it, and she charged her less than what, like with Mark. Really? Wow. Charged her less because she was local, <laughs> right? Yeah, she charged her less. Honestly, that's in the UK. But what I read about the UAE when I was over there was in the paper. And it must have been English paper or English text. Yeah. I don't, I don't read Arabic. Um, I can do 11 letters. I can read 11 letters. <laughs> um, but it was saying that the the local men who wear the, the what's the traditional Arab dress? The white. Well, they, they call it either dishdasha or. Dishdasha and a the headscarf. Yeah. What's that called? A kafir. A kafir, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the men who wear those, because they don't all wear that out there, do they? But yeah. a lot of the traditional people do. They were complaining that when they go into a shop, local mm. shop in UAE where they're from, their prices get marked up because the assumption the shop by the shop owner is that because they dress like that, mm. they got a bit more money about them. Mm. So they were charging, they were charging the Dubaians <laughs> a little more money, which is kind of which is kind of backwards. That's a strange place, though. So. Uh, <clears throat> oh, I was going to say, have you spent much time out there? Of course you are. The I found it to be very. I couldn't live there, UAE. I mean, a lot of my friends. I've got friends that have moved out there because you know. I don't know, it's changing quickly, but, you know, it used to be tax-free and you get a lot of value for money. It's quite a good quality of life for a family. You can have a big house and all that. And I can see the appeal. And actually, you know, I've, I've passed through on several occasions and had a great time because you can stay in a really nice hotel that's, you know, not overly expensive. And it's a, it's very convenient. Everything's there. But, you know, it's uh, it's very difficult to sort of see beyond that and see the original culture, you know, because that's kind of very much disappeared. Um, there are places outside of Dubai and Abu Dhabi, this up in the, the northeast, um, actually where it gets a bit more wild. Um, it, it's much more interesting. And, and actually you can go and see... Uh, some some quite beautiful scenery. I mean, you've got Sir Banias Island, which is this amazing sort of desert island, which has been um, Sheikh Zayed basically took this, what was a desert island, irrigated it with water from the mainland that he pumped across, and put all these trees in there. And uh, and now he he basically put all of the um, endemic Arabian species. So you've got cheetah, 
you've got all these amazing oryx at antelope it's like a little mini jurassic park in the just off the coast of the uh you know in the <laughs> off the coast there and uh it's, it's, it's amazing these little quirky things that you kind of don't really hear about until you get there yeah have they finished the uh yeah they got the palm haven't they where they created the palm yeah there's are two they, now, isn't there? There's two palms, two, yeah. Yeah, and and have they finished the world yet? No, have they? That yeah. went pear ship, didn't it? Did it? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, they started. Built, so for people listening or watching who who don't know all about, it, you got this iconic palm where they created a ship of palm tree off off the coast in uh, off the coast of Dubai, and then they also created. You can see it when you fly over. Or started to create a world, a map of the world. So lots of little islands, you know, an island for. The North Americas and Island South America, etc. Mm. Map of the world, but islands you can go visit. And um, but halfway through that, I think was when the the financial crisis hit. Right. Okay. Yeah, and they just stopped stopped doing it. Okay, so it's just a load of rocks in the sea <laughs> yeah. now, is it? Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I have. Oh, that was about four years ago. Four years ago. Five <laughs> years ago when I saw it last. And um, now I was going to say about well, Dubai is <clears throat> in that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're living there with the. Oh, I can get a mega nice house. There's tax benefits to be had. Dubai, the city, that's where my experience is, super clean. Oh, my mm. God, it's so clean. So clean. You never see any coppers about. But he's, like you say, scratch beneath the surface. surface. You've got a massive illegal immigration problem. Loads of Africans there, hasn't there? Um, all, I mean, the ladies are all hairdressers by day and then doing other things by, by night. Um, but it's in the... The way of living seems so far removed to the UK culture, and I'm talking about even with clusters of UK people, expats out there, mm. in that if you want to do anything, it's going to be miles from your house, and you can't just take a stroll down the road and walk past the shops. That's too hot, isn't it? You know, you don't well, want to walk yeah, anywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty clinical way. I don't know, I don't know it's a strange one to me. Stranger to me. Where have you, have you always lived in the UK, or have you lived elsewhere? I've always lived in the UK. I mean, I've never... For all my travelling, I've never actually put roots down other than a few months here and there. You know, I lived in States for for like three months. Lived in Mexico for a couple of months. Um, but that's it, really. It's always been... I've always been on the move, you know, but always coming back. And I've always... I'm from, originally from, from Stoke-on-Trent, but, you know, ever since leaving the army, I've, I've you know, either lived or had a base in London. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna stay down these parts. I, I think so for now. I mean, I would I would like at some point to perhaps go and try living in another country or another city just just for the experience, really. So, um, yeah, perhaps. I, I mean, I love Cape Town. Cape Town's. I'm going there in two weeks' time. Funny okay. enough, yeah, I've never yeah. been. I've never been. I love it. It's one of my favourite cities. Really? Yeah. It's I'm going up to um, uh, Durbanville. Okay. So, how well do you know Cape Town? Um, am I gonna get robbed in Durbanville? Uh, Can I go for a run? Can I go for a yeah, run? Yeah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Nobody's <laughs> going to... Yeah, you'll be right. I mean, there's a, you hear the horror stories, but I think that hopefully the Wild West days are over down there. You know, there's still... There is still crime. There is still a lot of carjackings and things, but um, no, it's just so stunning. And you've got everything there. You've got this amazing city with the mountains and the sea, and, you know, you're not far from the, the wine regions and the all the garden routes. Stunning, yeah. yeah. They, they've got... A, right dramas in South Africa at the minute with the president and they yeah I mean it's it's politically but then they've, they always have I mean like the first time I went there I was like nine, 18 in fact and everyone was convinced that the country was going to erupt into chaos then and it, you know it, it, that was a long time ago now. yeah I, mm, I pff, it's, it's corruption isn't it but I think I've always, I'm of the firm belief now these days with, as I've sort of opened my eyes a little bit to things that every single government in the world is corrupt 
every single government in the world is corrupt. It's just how how uh, discreet they are at being corrupt to choose the game. <laughs> I, I do believe it, but it's, and, that's, and, and that's not a criticism of it. It's just how the game is played. Mm. It's just how the game is played. It's like um, politicians, you know? I mean, like Johnny Mercer on. What a mega bloke. What a mega bloke. And uh, But unfortunately, he's in, well, it's not calling Johnny a liar, right? But unfortunately, that game of politics, it's one where they, to succeed... Even, and again, I'm not calling Johnny a liar, I'm talking about politics in general, right? You can have the most well-meaning person go in, like, try and get the politics start off the councillor and try and go up the ranks um, within it. Mm. And, you're on, and your intentions can be honest. But the system But there's a point where it comes. If that, you yeah. need to achieve it, you've got to start playing the game. And it, it, it's, it's disheartening in a way, because it, again, it goes back to that uh, sort of what we touched on with Syria and media um, you, you don't understand what's being fed to you. Like the situation in Syria, we are digressing, you're going back and forth here, but this, the situation in Syria where you say it's confusing, 99.9% of people in the world do not realise just how confusing it is. You know, I mean, from my knowledge, mm. uh, I've I've had I've had mates out there, I've had mates out there fighting against, um, fighting against with the fight against ISIS, mm-hmm. um, and not supporting Syrian the Syrian army, right? As it because you know US aren't supporting it, we are not supporting the Syrian army. At the same time, as having mates not in a military not an, an official military capacity out there, uh, but but supported behind the curtains at a government level, right? Working alongside the Russians. And the Syrians fighting ISIS, so over, so over, you know, against against Syria, against ISIS, and then covert with Syria, with Russia, and against like, bizarre, m- mental, mental, oh, yeah. Yeah. mental. No, oh, absolutely. And also, on the flip side, you know, the policies from the US and indirectly, as you know, we are supporting Saudi Arabia. We're supporting, you know, governments that directly fund and support ISIS and terrorism. We support Turkey. Turkey's a NATO member. Who's supporting ISIS? Turkey. Where does all where do the arms come from? Turkey. Where do all the illegal antiquities that are stolen from places like Palmyra and um you know, all of Iraq, where do they go? They go through Turkey. Oh really? And, you know, that's disheartening. You know, they're on meant to be on our side. And yet they are the sole biggest supporter of um, the people who are destroying the Kurdish regions. Turkey's bombing the Kurds. We're meant to be supporting the Turks and we're, uh, the Kurds, and yet we're allowing Turkey to fight against them and undermine them. Um, Israel, I met a, a Mossad agent in northern Israel, and, you know, he wouldn't let me film him but, and, or mention his name, but off the record he was explaining how it's Israel's policy up on the Golan Heights and places near Matula where you've got on the border with Syria. I'd always wondered why there was a pocket of ISIS just on the Syrian side that was isolated, you know, completely surrounded by Assad and Iranian special forces, yet they still managed to survive and had not been destroyed. Why is that? Well, of course, Israel was supporting them, you know, by allowing their fighters to use Israeli hospitals, by giving them medical supplies. I remember, remember, remember. I mean, it's bonkers. Book, yeah. and, and and Israel is supposed to be our side as well, and they're you know 
you know, but but that's just that's I guess polit real politic. You know, this is how the the game is played, like you say. And and if you know, they'd rather have ISIS, a bunch of barbarians, on the border than Assad and Iran. You know, who <laughs> barbarians on the border on their side? Isn't yeah, it? because it gives them a buffer yeah. zone and it gives them uh, you know a, a bunch of people who they can help to fight against and undermine. You know. Yeah. So it's very, very complicated. There was 2,000 different armed groups in Syria. 2,000? 2,000. Yeah, when I was there. Ooh. And it's that's a combination just... of military and... Oh, you've got um... village militias. You've got everything from just gangs. Um, but of 2,000 separate armed groups, you know, how do you even get that? How do you even get your head around that? You've got the Syrian Arab army, so Assad's troops, supported by Hezbollah from Lebanon. You've got Iran assisting them as well, along with Russia, of course. Um, Iran was assisting them by going into Afghanistan, going into the jails, finding the Hazara, the Hazara being a Shia tribe, going through the jails and saying to any, any of the Hazara inmates, saying, look, get out of jail, free card. All you need to do is come and spend a year fighting in Syria on Assad's side. So you get these Afghan mercenaries who'd been busted out of Afghan jails going into Syria and fighting against ISIS, or not necessarily just ISIS, but against Jamiat al-Islam or um, al-Nusra Front and all these different groups. And who do you think is fighting in these different groups? Of course, it's other Afghans on the other side, Pashtuns, al-Qaeda, um, former Taliban, Chechens, who are brought in by the people that we're supporting, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. It's a complete bloody mess. <laughs> I did not. You just made it more complicated. I, didn't yeah, I know. Well, I came away with a lot more questions than I had answers. <laughs> Mate, when uh, I'm, I, I don't want to give spoiler alerts uh, for the book, right? But you mentioned the um, gun in the back of a tank. Can I? Can I? Can I ask about that? Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. Mm. So, I'm because I'm going to question the tactics. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't many of those around. <laughs> so you're on a, you're you're in, in Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, and you're with. Uh, the Kurds? No, uh, no. At this point, this was with um, the Hashid, which is one of the Shia paramilitaries. That's right. And they're off to do to attack and basically sweep through a load of areas to capture a town. Well, they were basically just doing. They were just doing a clearance <laughs> operation all the way um, down, following the Euphrates River from um, the edge of the Kurdish lands all the way down to Baghdad. So it was, it was called the Hawija Offensive. That's and, it, Hawija. And yeah. the idea was was to just sweep advance to contact, basically, seeing what happened. And that was all ISIS territory. And the, the tactical formation they used was <laughs> essentially a traffic jam of a, a, a line of armoured vehicles. Not even armoured. I mean, it was <laughs> literally taxis. There was a bulldozer at the front. With there a was big, a bulldozer you know, at the front. That yeah. was, that was yeah. quite, I thought that was quite... In, 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 <laughs> You know, in, ingenious because the bullets were literally bouncing off the the front of this bulldozer, and the 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 the, the guy driving the bulldozer was literally just wearing a cowboy hat. I mean, it was hilarious. I I mean, one that's very surreal. And then you've got you know literally people rocking up to the battlefield in taxis, and then you've you there was big battle tanks. There was loads of pickups, obviously with people just hanging off the side. I mean, it was a complete carnival. Um, so yeah, we joined this. This, this carnival and uh, hitchhiked, you know, into battle. And for some bizarre reason, we kept getting bumped forward onto vehicles, saying, "Right, get off this one, get onto that one." And before we knew it, we were actually in in the second vehicle in the entire convoy on the Hawija <laughs> offensive, 
riding in single file straight towards, you know, in, in ISIS, behind ISIS territory, straight towards a town occupied by ISIS. I mean, it was nuts. It was a bit right. I lolled, mate. I laughed, laughed, laughed out loud. I was in the car, listening to driving out of London. And you're on about that bulldozer driver. And you're saying he's got his cowboy hat on. <clears throat> and the bullets are bouncing off. And one of the, when he said that a contact happened. And uh, and obviously his, well, not obviously, but his job, one of his jobs was to to dig, to use a bulldozer, to dig up like the a ground and line, put yeah. a berm, put a bundle line in there to, as protection. Yeah. But he's... He said the way he was going about it, a fag hanging out his mouth, cowboy jacket on, <laughs> big grin on his face. He's, I, I think you, I think you were as very, the bulldozer seemed to thoroughly enjoy his job. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a firefighter on around him and he's happily going away, mate. Oh, I cried. No, it's, it was a very <laughs> surreal couple of days. I mean, but were made even more surreal by the fact that these guys, or at least some of them, um, not all, because a lot of these were just civvies who just volunteered. You know, for them it was jihad. You know, they, they're the grand. Uh, Ayatollah um, Ali al-Sistani, um, which is the the sort of the Shia spiritual leader in Iraq. Iraq? In Iraq, oh, yeah, 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 there's yeah. two. In the, you've got Khomeini and, and in, in Iran. But he was basically said to everyone, right, we want to get rid of ISIS, so it volunteers. So a lot of the Shia population volunteered. So the ones that didn't join the more regular forces just formed this rabble. And they were just going around, you know. They were getting kind of getting orders from the Iraqi government, but most of them just did whatever they wanted. So they were going through. Um, but some of them, especially the leadership, were, you know, or had been, in, you know, part of the Shia forces fighting against Brits and Americans, you know, when when we were occupying Iraq. So some of the people that I'd met were literally the ones blowing up and shooting Brits back in Basra when you were there. That's the way it goes, isn't it? Yeah. That's the way it but, goes. you know, I mean, I don't know if you... Read the bit about the uh, the sniper Abu Tassin. Yes, um, I mean you must have That's thought that I was read a bit. bit. I've listened to it all. <laughs> I mean, this guy was just, yeah, just you know, he'd. I have genuinely read it. I have ge- listened to it. I have genuinely listened <laughs> I to it. I'm, I'm, like, I'm telling you. God. I mean, he he was he was a real character. Sixty five years old. Yeah, killed four hundred and sixty odd ISIS. You know, fought in every conflict since nineteen seventy three. And I was sat there interviewing this guy, thinking, "Wow, yeah, he was an alley. He was an yeah. alley. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was it? What, what was I going to say before that? Then what was it? Oh man, you lost. You said I didn't read the book. Said, <laughs> no, 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 I just wonder if you'd remember that bit because I thought, yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah, sniper yeah, yeah. is a kind of memorable. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. Um, oh God, the convoy. No, I've lost my train of thought now. Ah, what was it about Syria? What was it? No, you throw me. You throw me left. Sorry. Throw <laughs> me. No, I had a question. It's gone. I had a question. And it's gone. Um. So the the those rabble thrown together, unpaid. Um. Either, yeah, or either like literally just expenses. You know, they 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 were promised pay. Some of them hadn't been paid in months. Some of them had got a bit. Some of them not at all. But they, for them, most of them hadn't been paid. Most of them were just doing it because they thought it was the right thing to do for the country. Yeah, I mean, you know, religion has its bad points. It also has its good points. You can, well, you can, I mean, a religion will mm. get people to unify and come together in, ex- in, extreme, in extreme circumstances mm. a lot faster than, for example, or like the UK could do, for example, where we're, yeah, we're sort of Christian, 
but we're not really following it, you know, and it's atheists and, and I'm, I'm atheist. I might be agnostic and I might be changing my train of thought. Anyway, but I'm not practicing Christian, you know. Mm. We're not devout with a religion. And I think it would take us, it would take a lot more to get mm. us going to go and fight a battle, I think, than it would do. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, though, most of most of the fighters weren't particularly religious. I didn't see any of them praying, apart from the mullahs that were sort of there as the guides. But for them, it was I think it was more than that. I think it was, um, you know, they'd had this religious sort of call to, to fight. But for them, it was it was more about defending their homeland, defending their country, and and just actually probably a sense that of duty to towards their own people and again it was just tribalism you know no i, I didn't sorry i didn't mean i didn't mean to say that they're doing it for for their religion but i mean the fact that they're in a yeah, you're right, a lot of them yeah. don't practice it yeah. but probably most i mean most of them will be doing the you know their prayers when they should uh, in, in the day but mo- most of them will i think some of them yeah. oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly wasn't <laughs> most Iraq. um okay but yeah yeah no yeah yeah no you're right yeah it's um I mean, the religion, religion was quite an interesting sort of aspect. You know, obviously, it was a big part of this journey was to try and understand the mentality, which was seeing people fight on different, lots of different conflicts. Um, but I think that what I really found was actually it wasn't really down to religion most of the time. It was simply down to to, to tribalism, to oil, to um, the sectarianism. I don't think, you know... It wasn't half as religious as as people make out or, or think of. Perhaps you know you, you kind of do. Obviously, you know, on a Friday people go to the mosque, but I think a lot of people go to the mosque not because they're particularly religious, but because it's just a sense of community. There's a, there's a very in you know ingrained sense of community in the Middle East, um, and it kind of it brings people together. People are very family orientated in a way that we aren't so much in the West anymore. Um, so for them, going to the mosque on a Friday is just a good way of catching up with your mates. It's a bit like going to the pub, you know. And um, in the absence of pubs in most of these places, it was a, it's a place that people go and just catch up with mates. They'll go and have a chat afterwards. They'll do business there. It's not very. It's not about going to pray. It's about the people coming together and, and the atmosphere. And uh, it's very. It's a very social activity. Islam, you know. It's it's part. It's everything. It's all encompassing. It's not just about going and praying. It's about it's about everything—the family, the way the way life is structured. Mm, I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you, with your historical knowledge, I've always thought—I think I read it somewhere, mate—that is uh, Iraq <clears throat> or or what it was back in the day before it was Iraq. Well, Mesopotamia. Some, mm. Mesopotamia. Some say it's uh, what they would call it—the cradle civil, civilization. Mm. And if I'm digressing my own thoughts here, but you went through Kurna, didn't you? Al Kurna, mm. where they say that the Garden of Eden is yeah. the like the Garden of Eden is, and the tree that, yeah. um, if you believe in that, the tree that Eve picked the apple from is there. I never, I never managed to go there when I was. Yeah, I went there. there. It's, it was, I have to say, it was a bit of a letdown. It was a load of picnic tables made of concrete and like they put, rack, a big fa- <laughs> put a load of put a load of um, you know sort of horrible concrete really garish lights around it and then obviously fairy lights dangling off the tree I mean it, it's they've done it in proper Middle Eastern fashion um, it, you know it really isn't as <laughs> as kind of uh, classy as you'd, you'd kind of hope it to be um, 
But it is what it is, you know, and if you believe these stories, I mean, you don't even have to believe it, you know, the, the fact is that this was the cradle of civilization. This is where human, it was where farming really began. You know, this is where some of the oldest cities in the world, that you can still go and see the ruins. Well, that was going to be my question. Why, why is it regarded as the cradle of civilization? Well, back... And the birth of arithmetic as well? I mean, well, that, I mean, that was much later, but certainly, ten, you know, 10,000 years ago, um, there were the first cities of Ur and Eridu sprang up. You know, and and they are t- almost twice as old as the pyramids in Egypt. Really? Twice as old, you know, f- 10,000 years ago. It's probably a long time. Jericho um, in the West Bank, um, Damascus. You know, these cities are, are really, really ancient. People don't really re- understand necessarily. It's very hard to grasp the fact that they're twice as old as the pyramids. The pyramids are 5,000 years old. Yeah. And yet you've got Eridu, which is still, you know, there's a big lump in the ground. There's nothing there anymore. But and it's not even protected. It's just a big mound of old rubble and bricks. And you can walk in there, and there's these bricks on the floor. You pick one up, and it's got cuneiform writing, which is the oldest written language, on all these bricks. This is stuff that should be in the museum, but it's not. It's just strewn across the desert floor. Millions and millions of bricks, bits of pots, pottery, just, you know, everywhere. And it was used as a, back in the, um, because it's the only feature for, you know, for miles and miles around. It's during in Iraq. Inside Iraq, yeah. And it's not far from the Q80 border. Oh, it's down um, south. Down south, okay. yeah. So, you know, it, because it was the only feature for miles around, you know, it was strafed during the war and it was used as a, a firing range. People just shooting into this mound, which it's just absolute. Is that a Safwan? Is that a No, so, so Safwan's close by, but no, Eridu and Ur are the two oldest ah. cities. But um, Safwan's close by. And then you've got Nasiriya, the, the Mesopotamian marshes. So yeah. you'd have been around that area, I guess. Yeah, and Nasir- Shatel, Arab and Nasir- all that. Nasir- yeah. yeah, so yeah. Nasiriyah, yeah. Yeah. Um, In fact, no, we, we... At the time, we would steer clear of Nasiriyah when I was doing the private security, steer clear of Nasiriyah because it, it was a bit dodgy. Uh, ISIS had not long been kicking off. I think, when was I there? 2011, 2012. Mm. Um, and the, what started happening was there would be... I think, thinking back, they would... They were attributing the the the, the, the attacks like you and there, Nazaria, Basra, things that were out of the ordinary, sort of picking up on the, on the level of activity as in hostile activity, and they were attributed to, to ISIS, but not that ISIS was doing it, but that the unrest what was that was going on in Syria because the, the caliphate, correct me if I'm wrong, just mm. so people listening, the the the, the uh, what uh, ISIS claim that well say they're trying to claim back as mm. their land, the Islamic Caliphate is. It doesn't just encompass Syria. It encompasses most of Syria. The top half of Iraq comes down a little bit south, southern from Baghdad to around about Nazaria, I think. Not it, as far south. Yeah, as not Baghdad. quite. As, yeah, a little bit of Iran, mm. Kurdistan, a little bit of Turkey. Um, I wouldn't have thought Turkey, but yeah, I mean, they they wanted to create this. It was basically the the sunny heartlands. Yeah. Um, and, and the Arabian, you know, basically the sort of Saudi Arabia is, is technically, they they really want the heartlands, which is Mecca, Medina. Saudi? Yeah, that's what, I mean, it's all, I this is, of course, yeah. I mean, they, the, the, the caliphate itself, you know, of which the ISIL or ISIS, whatever you want to call it, is only one part of it. They want the whole peninsula. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. did not know that. Right, okay, so, because one, one of the questions is going to be... For so them, the holy cities, it's Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem, that's what they really wanted. Yeah, they, they, they I mean, they, they, they try and claim that back in the you know the days before the ottoman empire when you had these big big caliphates um you know they they stretched all the way 
across um, the western part of what you know what later became the Persian Empire, basically all of all of the Arabian Peninsula, um, because actually Arabia, and this is part of the controversy of the, the title of my book, is that Arabia or the Arabian Peninsula doesn't include Iraq, doesn't include Syria, so that's that's just one part of it. So the title. So you're talking about the this as a journey through the heart of the Middle East. Why are you talking about Arabia? All oh, right, sorry, Arabia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I got, got confused there. Uh, but so. Explain the controversy with the title. Well, the controversy of this, I mean, it's going back to what you're saying about, you know, the caliphate and ISIS and all these different groups is actually there is, there's no one sense of what is Arabia because it's, it, we don't, you know, it's, I've purposely called it that. But the reality is it, there is no Arabia. It's, it's countries, it's, it's tribes. It always has been, you know, the, the original tribes that formed the Arabs, you know, that when Islam came in the seventh century, and they started expanding. It was just a few little tribes that originally came from Yemen. That's where they originally came from. There's nobody living in the middle of the desert. Why would they? And it grew and grew and formed these cities along the coastline, you know, and then invaded up to Iraq and then the Levant, so Syria and, and, and Lebanon, and then across North Africa. But it all came from a few little tribes that were knocking around the southwestern corner of, of Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Oh, I thought, because I always thought Arabs are from the Arabian Peninsula so I'm wrong well they were but only one small corner and they got and then they yeah and they they spread but but you're going back to your historical sort of question was actually the people that lived in the Mesopotamian marshes they weren't they were Sumerians they were a very different people Um, and it's all you know it's all linked in nowadays but you know there's so much history there and it's very very difficult to sort of again and one of the challenges of my book was to try and bring out some of the historical legacy not just of the ancient history but more modern history the history of islam and the history of the crusades the history of the ottoman empire and then later colonial rule there's so many different layers to it and you obviously can't bring it all out but that's what i wanted to try and do is give people a flavor of just some of the the complexities that are going on in this region Mm. yeah um language is a question for you Mm. and feel free to say i'm not a clue because you might not have a clue it just struck me there, right? You've got, um, you've got the Middle East, you've got Arabia. <laughs> Middle East and then um, uh, North Africa, Arabian Peninsula, speak, speak Arabic, mm. yeah? There's variations across the, the regions, regional yeah. dialect and, and other things like that. But really, there's not any great difference. I, I remember, I, I do remember my first time in Iraq, private school after, after I left, and I'd I had this app was it an app on my phone at the time and it was because uh, I wanted to learn Arabic mm. and uh, it taught one of the things it taught me is how to say hello I didn't know though that was teaching me a different re- it was teaching me Egyptian right which yeah is, and it, which is um is Isaac I think is is uh, how are you no hello right. okay. how are you so mm-hmm. who are you Isaac I think and I said that in Iraq on the first in the to the Iraqis in the team on this and on the team on the first day like why are you talking like, why are you talking like that like, what. Why are you talking that filthy language? <laughs> Not Arabic, yeah. <laughs> What's it? Sangha, yeah. Is it Sangha? No, that's, that's uh, Pashtun. Anyway, so you get slight variations. Yeah. But then when I was thinking of Afghan, right, which obviously you've got a huge amount of experience in as well, you've got entirely different languages there. Am I oh, right? Yeah, for sure. You've got yeah. Pashtun, you've got... Tajik, you've got... Da- Farsi. Farsi, you've got... Why is I mean, that then? Why is there such a difference? Well, because the... There's just a lot more ethnic groups in Afghanistan. I mean, the Arabs pretty much did a very good job of controlling the whole region. 
in the aftermath of the of when Islam came and, and took over. And the, and the language is the one thing that is probably the great hope for the region because it does give people common ground. It does enable people to talk and have dialogue. Um, but you're right, there was quite a few subtle differences and some not-so-subtle differences. I mean, I suppose you could compare it to some of the more extreme dialects in the UK if you put a you know, a Scouser and a Glaswegian and a Cockney all in one room. They speak the same language technically, but all quite different. You know, and I guess that's how you'd think of Arabic from Egyptian to uh, to Iraqi to Lebanese to, you know, so there's lots of different dialects within it. Um, and some of them, you know, just, I mean, it depends on your level of education. If you, if you're, you know, if you're an educated Iraqi, you probably understand, you know, uh, you know an educated egyptian very well but if you know if you get the some of the some of the more uneducated literate groups that do speak arabic but perhaps with a really big strong accent then they wouldn't get they wouldn't understand a word of what somebody in a different country would say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so the you know it i get it's a double edged sword there because it does you know on paper it means you could travel anywhere within the region you only need to learn one language but as you've you know you discovered yourself actually it's it's a bit. It's a bit more difficult than that. Mm. Mm. Moving forward to your Israel experience. Question for you: that that area greatly interests me. However, I don't have the greatest knowledge of it. I read um, fact it was on the first Afghan tour before we deployed. There was in Bastion, and in one of the billet, in one of the tents in in there, there was a, a bookshelf, and someone left books there. Arafat was on the shelf. Mm. I thought, oh, I'll have a read of that because I don't know anything about the region and, and let's see what's going on. Read the book, I was like, what the heck? Israelis are bastards. And I thought, hang on a minute, I've read Arafat, so it's going to be a bit one-sided in what it says. And then I, went, I went and got another book. I went and got back to the UK and it was, it was really a little one. It's like an info book, mm. facts, and it was some, called something like uh, A History of the Israel-Palestine Conflict. Um, what's the timelines and this, that, and this, that, and and I still was of the very much same opinion at the time, and even until recently, that the Israelis aren't that nice of people. Of opinion, I'm not saying it's fact, right? Unless the people, the Palestinians, have been screwed over. Mm. Um, but just it was, it was yesterday. It was, it was small. Uh, no, this morning I was listening to a, a podcast, a Joe Rogan podcast, and he had a lady. I was a Jewish, and she was talking about it from a different perspective. And she, she was, yeah, it was, it was an interesting perspective, um, and. I want to ask you, going back, we're talking hypothetical, going back to just after the Second World War, um, where we annexed Palestine, give Israel, give the Jews Israel. Do you think? Well, do you think there could have been a different way to do things then? I, what, well, because it was the you know the the Jewish problem. I mean, it, it, then it was what what. You got the Jews. They've been mm. flipping, had a horrendous time of it. Genocide. Well, everyone knows the score was Second World War. I I can't see what other solution there could have been. Poor use of the word. What other fix it could have been. But it's turned out so bad to 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 take away half of Palestine's land, sit the Israelis in there, mm. and then what's happened since? What do you think? What's your having been there and spoken to the people? Mm. What's your opinion on it? Wow, I think it's probably one of the toughest questions in, what should we have done in, in, what should 20th, we have done 20th century <laughs> history isn't it i mean I, i'm not sure i can offer any any advice i mean it is very complicated and, and really depends who you speak to but from what i saw i'm going to try and be objective here because 
I saw it from both sides. You know, I spent time with Palestinians <clears throat> in places like Jericho and Hebron, which sees, you know, awful segregation between the communities. Um, I was there when Trump announced the um, that he was going to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Oh, uh, that was, yeah, I, remember, I read, um, I listened to it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, you know, meant that, you know, it kicked off across across the region, but especially in the West Bank. Um, so, you know, I, I, and because I'd spent a lot of time in Jordan as well, um, of which, you know, a lot of a significant proportion of Jordan's population claim to be Palestinian, whatever that may, means. Oh, really? Palestinian itself, there is no, and this is a very controversial statement, but there is no Palestinian, there's no Palestinian ethnicity. You know, you're not an ethnic Palestinian. You're an ethnic Arab that may have been grown up or been born in the West Bank or Gaza Strip. You know, um, equally, there are Israeli Arabs that are quite content to live in Israel and don't want to live in the West Bank. They want to live in a city like Haifa or Tel Aviv or Jerusalem and they're quite happy living under Israeli law um, and don't see it as an occupation. There is a significant portion of um, Palestinian, well, Palestinians living in Jordan. The reason they live there is because they sold their land to Jewish Israelis. People often forget this. And I, it, look, it's, you know, if you sell your land to a Jew, you are persona non grata back in the West Bank. You're, you're going to annoy your neighbours. You're going to... You know, but that the, the Israelis didn't necessarily. I mean, you can there was there was some land grabbing, of course, but you know, a lot of the land was sold. You know, it was bought by the bought from Palestinians, who then did a runner to Jordan and bought themselves nice houses there. So it's very complicated. I mean, I you know, I'd got the utmost sympathy for Palestinians in the sense that you know they have lost a lot of land. They've what they see as their country is being invaded in, or occupied by Jews who they see as foreigners. The reality is that, you know, <laughs> there's no right or wrong. I met lots of lovely Jews. I met Z everything ranging from hardcore Zionists who live in these settlements, in these walled enclosures, um, who, and I also met, you know, lots of normal people living in the kibbutz, living in the cities. Um, I let, met lovely families, Jewish families living in the border areas who face daily rocket attacks from Gaza or from, um, you know, over the border in, in the West Bank or from, um, you know, terrorists. There's, there's lots of terrorist attacks, you know, Palestinian, ter you know, terrorists going around stabbing Israeli soldiers on a daily basis, which is why they're armed. Um, IDF, you know, the Israeli Defense Forces, shoots lots of Palestinians. I just think there's this horrible cycle of hatred. And you've also got these walls between the two communities that don't exactly help matters because there's no dialogue. People don't, you know, I met, I was embedded with a Palestinian protest. I was meeting protesters as they were, you know, using slingshots, throwing rocks against, um, you know, the, the IDF soldier position. The irony is, of course, the word Palestine comes from the original Philistine. And, you know, you only have to sort of read the Old Testament to remember the story of David and Goliath. And amazing to see how the shoe's on the other foot when you've got the, the Philistines lobbing rocks at, uh, at the Israelis. But the point is that, you know, it's, you've got these two communities of people 
who are basically one and the same. You know, if you go back 2,000 years, they are from the same region. The Jews and the Arabs used to live together. You know, there, there was no Arab 2,000 years ago. There was local tribes and there was Jews, there was Christians, there was, there was mostly animists. You know, the, the, the people that lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago were, were generally <clears throat> just Bedouin tribesmen without religion necessarily. So, you know, it's a very complicated situation now because you've got brought in lots of outside influences. You've got the, the enormous Jewish lobby in the USA, which which accounts for a lot of the, uh, um, well, the vast majority of the funding for the state of Israel. So how do you... How do you ever get peace when you've got all of these different factions, all of these different agendas? Um, I don't know. I agree with them. I agree with them. I, I agree with them. It, it's, I think it's not fixable. I, I think the blame does not lie. The blame for the situation does not lie with Israel or Palestine. The blame lies with America and the UK and other people back in 1946, 1947. There were decisions made at the time because it was, you know, like you say, against the backdrop of the Second World War, yeah. against the backdrop of the, you know, the Holocaust. And actually back in those days, the population of what is now seen as Palestine, Israel, there's nobody there. It was an empty land. It was just desert wasteland. There wasn't millions and millions of Palestinians living there that suddenly got booted out. It didn't work like that. It was just a few shepherds. It was tiny, tiny communities. Nah. Yes. Nah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know the historical expert. I, no, it can't have been that few. It was My tiny, it. The, <laughs> tiny communities. My understanding of, of sort of history of it is that... Uh, yeah, back in the day, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, it was, it was tribal, a bunch of tribes. Yeah, a tribe that were the Palestinians, not by that name. Yeah, the tribe that were this, tribe that, that. And basically, all them, this is me thinking, boiling it back to that book I read 10 years ago, <laughs> A History of the Palestinian-Israel Conflict. Basically, all bugged out, and people, a tribe stayed. They became the Palestinians. It became Palestine. Um, uh, that's my understanding of it back in the day. But no, I don't think it's fixable. I can absolutely sympathise with the Palestinians. I can understand how I can understand how a nation which is what they were, what they are, what they what they what they call I'd say they're a nation. Whether whether it's officially recognised or not, you know, I'd say they are. They've got every right to be. As do Israel, right? Um and I got I, I can understand how a people can be driven to I mean Palestine's a birth of terrorism, right? That's what they say. It's a birth that's the birth the suicide bombers that's where it all started. That's what they say. Um I can understand it can be driven to that. And I I I've get the example I've given in the past is imagine um imagine uh I I've used moving Welsh, but you're English, right? Imagine being in uh, up in Stoke um, when you're 15, 16 years old and the Welsh flipping, have built up their military might yeah, and they come across the, come across the border with all their weapons and they come across the border and they, and they take 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 miles of land off the English and they go, that was now. And the people that live on that land, so Stoke now, I don't know how far it is, but Stoke now is under Welsh control. And all of a sudden, things get more expensive in the shops, and you can't just walk. You can't do this. It's a curfew, and blah 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 blah. And you say, 
uh, hello, Scotland, England, well, England can't do anything about it because they've got the power to do it because the Welsh are more powerful. Scotland, hello, Ireland, hello, France, uh, they've done, taken this land, we want to give it back. And no one listens, and no one listens for decades. No, the international community don't listen to the English. What do you do then as a, as, as, as a boy or as an adult? Uh, what do you turn to when, it's, when everything else is gone and you've seen your parents getting beaten up and this, that and the other and you've been oppressed? The only thing you can turn to, uh, the last thing you can turn to is violence. The last thing you turn to, the other way to go about it, is violence. So I can understand how the Palestinians have gone like that. I can understand how the Israelis have gone like that because it's become the situation where it's so indoctrinated in a pair of them, Israel and Palestine, we're right, you're wrong, that it just goes mental. There's no fix for it. I, I think uh, you could say there's a two-state solution, brilliant. But the majority of those two, the, I say the majority of the Palestinians won't accept that. And the hardcore Palestinians won't accept a two-state solution because it was their state in the first place, all theirs in the first place. Israel might be more accommodating of it. Well, it wasn't their state because there was no state of Palestine. There never has been a state of Palestine. That's the point. It wasn't one country taking over another country's land. I it was Palestine before. Don't destroy all my argument. I was, it, I was ranting for five minutes, mate. <laughs> um, it, was, it, was, it was a people. It was an Arab, Muslim Arab people. And then when the Jews came, they established the state of Israel on what many people considered to be Palestinian land. But there was no state of Palestine. What was the area it was of the before, Palestine? Then? The Palestinian mandate which was under British rule. Um, and then, you know, until the 1940s, um, and then when that, yeah, the, the state of Israel was created, um, and then suddenly the Palestinians found themselves homeless. And so there's, you're, you're right, you know, it can, very easy to see how that can escalate. Um, when we were in control, the reason we just left them to it was because it wasn't the Palestinians doing the terrorism, it was the Jews. The Jews were the ones who blew up the King David Hotel, the ones who were killing British soldiers, it wasn't the Palestinians, it was the Jews. And actually, the UK always had a quite a pro-Palestine approach to it until, uh, you know, and then when it when the Jews effectively booted us out, then we kind of said, we had to wash our hands of it. So I I don't support either side. I, I just think it's, it's a blooming mess. Um, people need to talk. The different communities need to talk. The problem is, of course, you've got... It's not the people. Most of the people that I met don't want a two-state solution. You're right. They want, and this goes from the the Zionist settlers through to the most Palestinians, they want their children to sit in the same classrooms. They want to be able to have mixed schools. They want their kids to be able to talk and have friends on the other community. But it's the leadership on both sides that doesn't want that. It's the leadership on both sides that has got such agendas and they're they're pushing their agendas, and not just politically motivated, but financial as well, to keep this conflict going. Mm. Yeah, that surprised me saying that. That most want that. I mean, <clears throat> I just thought the thing in my head there when I'm when I've been picturing it in my head, I'm thinking Israelis and Palestinians, white people and Arabs, and it's not it's not like no, that, is it? They're the all Jews, like the, the same. The Jews it's, were yeah. They were Arabs. They were people. They were they were Middle Eastern. The original, you know, the ones who left, all the ones who were thrown out two thousand years ago during the diaspora were were. Then it's not no, not at all. It's not. It's it's it, that's purely religion. You know, it's not ethnicity. I mean, the Jews now. You know, you've got you've got Eastern European Jews. You've got Spanish Jews. You've got North African Jews. You've got Middle Eastern Jews. You've got. Ethiopian Jews, there's a huge Ethiopian African Jewish population, you've got Russian Jews, so, you know, 
it's not about the ethnicity at all. Um, it's a, it's purely about the religion. Mm. You, you remind me that that, that that podcast I listened to this morning. I'm trying to remember the lady's name, uh, the Jewish lady, and she she said well, the first thing she said. You said earlier, what I've not heard before until you said it. Funny enough, I'm saying that you said it and she said it is that uh, you have to remember that a lot of the land taken was because Palestinians sold the land for the money. Right? Uh, and I, I'd never thought of that before. Oh, yeah, okay, I can, okay, I can see that. So it's not quite as... And they took all the land as... Took some land and we sold others. Mm. And the other thing there... Some of it was forced purchases, but... Yeah. yeah. Who, who, who built the wall? I don't know. In the, in the West Bank? Who built it? Well, do you think it was the Jews building it? Do you yeah. think it was Jewish labourers? Oh, no, you're Palestinian. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Sorry. Right. Actually, you know? physically built it. Yeah. yeah. But, yes. But then, devil's advocate, how else, if you're, if you're oppressed, have you got the money? How else are you going to remember? No, I agree. But, but you've got to remember that. It's, you know, you, it's still, it's, it's not, it's not Jewish people building yeah, yeah, the yeah, wall. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. The other, I mean, the other thing she said was that, um, what you touched on there is that the Jews, Jewish people are unique. They're like no other people in the world because Jews are a religion, yes, but they're also people. And you can be a a religious Jew or you can be a non-religious Jew. You're still a flipping Jew. You know, you can't be, you're either Christian or you're not. You know, you you get what I'm saying? Mm. So, like you're saying, you get Spanish Jews and Russian Jews and all of that. They're they're, they're a people. They're like, they're completely different to any other people in the world in that respect mm. but most Jews that I met were not particularly religious no no not really most Jews that I met certainly were and actually there was a fairly disparaging view of, of the, the Hasidic Jews <coughs> who are often seen as a bit of a scourge on society Yazidi Jews the Hasidic Hasidic sorry, sorry. yeah because they they don't work they basically claim benefits from the state and they all have lots and lots of children who all go on to become in Israel in Israel why and these are the guys that they just do effectively bible studies that's it they are they are religious they lead a very religious traditional way of life but they don't they're not seen by most let's say mainstream secular Jews as contributing a great deal other than reading the bible so there's even within Judaism there's these different sort of strata and and levels of what what people are seen as as validity and and uh so yeah I don't know it's a complicated situation complicated. I think it's screwed yeah I think you'll be fighting there forever same with I think the same with uh I think the same with Syria Iraq oh, good. I, I think no I think Syria is different I think Syria Assad has basically won he's not going anywhere um no. When it, as in, are you talking about the battle against ISIS, or are you talking? No, about ISIS, ISIS are—they're nothing. They were—they were never anything really. I, I think the biggest threat, um, the, the the ISIS were, I think, personally, I mean, they did some shocking things, but they were never a credible force. The deeper problem, ISIS, is, you know, is just another rename for Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda was just the remnants of. Saddam Hussein's army and 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 this Sunni, it's it's the Sunni Shia divide is is the big problem in the region and you'll have clashes. ISIS will just rename itself and come up with another guys in a few years. But but in you know in Syria, Assad has won. His um, 
you know, the, I don't think he's going anywhere. I think the Russians did a, played a, a very smooth move by backing him. Um, we didn't intervene. I'm not saying we should have intervened, but the fact we didn't <coughs> gave the Russians clearance to support their agenda in the region, which is backing Iran and Assad. And so, yeah, they've 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 nailed it. I mean, they've they've flushed out not only ISIS but most of the other insurgent groups. There will still be it will still be there bubbling away and under the surface, but the government have taken control of most most of the land back at least. From the from the guys I <clears throat> I knew um, who were working on that Assad side um, in the last few years, one of them I I, I trust trust them all greatly. One of them. A lot of time for him, you know. Um, super intelligent guy, uh, very well formed opinions. And I, he's someone, you know, if he said, if he said you whites turn to black, and now whites black, I'd, I'd, I'd say, if you say something, I believe him. Um, and he was of the opinion that Assad was good, good for that region. So for for Syria was good for it. And he was what he was basing it, what he was basing his experience on, or that opinion on was. His experience being around the, the government, being around the people who were they going off to fight, um, also engaging, friendly engaging with um, with the Russians on a on a certain level, which which surprised me. Um, but then that leads. I mean, and if you if you go back to what you're saying there, with ISIS maybe not being that credible, um, an organization in uh, threat. It's all just a power play, like anything in that region, isn't it? Then, mm. because if that's the case, why what what are the US bothering for? Well, Russia obviously bothering because they've got that they they want to secure that that area, and as a strategic of strategic well, that and oil, you know, at the end of the day, Russia, yeah, they they want to secure the pipeline that goes all the way. I mean, they call it the Sheer Crescent, but the idea is to secure the oil pipelines that can connect the Caspian Sea all the way through the region through Iran. Um, through Iraq, through always Lebanon. Did not know that. So for them, it's about access, money, finances, and oil. Effectively, um, we get our oil from Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, um, which goes another way. And uh, so we're backing Saudi. Simple God, I didn't even thought of that. I didn't even thought of that. And all it goes down to the 1979 revolution in Iran, where we, you know, Iran was on very friendly terms with the West. We say we, us in the States had, you know, had the Shah of Iran in our pockets. And then it all went when the, in the Iranian embassy, uh, the American embassy in Tehran was overrun by the religious faction within the student population. And the Ayatollah kicked off. I mean, basically, the Americans then said, right, we're not dealing with Iran. We're going to back the Saudis. And, and so that was when you've suddenly got the sectarian war, Iran all being Shia. Or mostly Shia, and then you've got, you know, Saudi Arabia as the heartland of the Sunni uh, faction. So it's on the one hand it's religious, but on the other hand it's also about who can supply the oil, whether it's going to be Iran or Saudi Arabia. Yeah, pennies just dropped there. I'm such an idiot. A penny just dropped there. <clears throat> when uh, one of the fascinating facts and figures I got from working in Iraq, we had a when I was with working with the oil companies, and we got a, we had the pleasure of having a brief from a Weatherford senior senior guy from Weatherford um, who was a 
for people listening, Weatherford's a big um, oil and gas company. And um, he was saying that, so Romalo oil field in, in the southern Iraq, I think it's the fifth largest oil field in the world, something like that. Something like that, it's flipping huge. And he was saying that yeah, those iconic um, flames you get burned off, mm. you know, the oil iconic pictures of oil fields of, uh, in the Middle East, and you get the flames burning off. And so people aren't aware that, that those, those are, those, that burn off, that's burn off excess gas that's created from drilling the oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was saying, I can't remember the name, Canadian guy, and he was saying that, so when you drill down, you get excess gases caused when you hit the oil fields and all the rest of it. Worst case scenario, that gas, that depending on what you're drilling into, the kind of geological features, uh, that gas can be used for nothing. It's useless. It'll kill you, like instant H, H2S and stuff like that. He said best case scenario, and depending on what oil field you're in, best case scenario is that gas comes up, and hypothetically speaking, without any treatment of that gas, you could plummet straight into a house and go straight into a cooker and be used as household gas. It's perfect. And he was saying Romano oil field, the entire oil field produces that gas. Perfect. In a day in Rala, those flames burn off enough of that gas in one day to power the whole of Iraq for six months. Six months. But the problem is they can't get the infrastructure and the pipe, the gas pipe, to get it out. They can't, they, no one can put it in and where's it going to go to? That's what, that's what you're saying to me. And I, when you, I was just thinking there that where Iraq is, you've got Iran to the east, Russian controlled. Also, you've got Kuwait to the south. The drama is there. Iran, you got Iran to the east, you've got Syria to the north, you've got Jordan to the west. Um, yeah, imagine if we control all that. <laughs> well, that's why Turkey's so important because the pipes, you know, can go through the through up to Turkey, um, and that's why it's so strategic. You know, it's on the border. You've got the Turks. You know, that's the only that's the route to Europe. You know, going that way. But that's but you know, the Russians have always wanted to, you know a piece of Turkey so they can control that that those access routes. Oil, flipping oil, oil. Apparently, the US are exporting oil now, aren't they? Apparently, I don't know. Yeah, I heard it in the last couple of weeks. They started exporting oil. I, I, I thought they were. They stockpiled a load. Uh, a load. They just had it stockpiled and sitting on it and buying, in, buying it in from wherever they buy it in from. And now they've apparently started stockpiling, uh, uh, exporting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a crazy, crazy world. <laughs> well, that took a, a political world. turn, didn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, we've got all of this. Um, start wrapping up, mate. Book. Where can people buy the book? Waterstones. I got mine. I, I got that copy from Waterstones. Those three copies. Yeah. Um, oh, hang on. No, I've got something else before you go, go on. on. Listen to this. Right. The reason is three copies. Yeah. Right? Because I'm going to pimp you out and you're going to sign a couple for me if that's all right. Yeah. One of them, inside, you're going you're gonna to write in there to Levison. Right. Right? And then whatever you want to put after, afterwards. Yeah. Because it's for so a friend of mine, John Vickers, he's a I don't know if you know John, CEO Blue Abyss, right? Uh, right, yeah, right. yeah, I met him, yeah. Yeah, John. So John Vickers yeah. has got a friend yeah. who has named his son Levison after you. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and the, boy, the boy's nine months old now. That's amazing. And John okay. wrote said, you, we see if, if I said, meet up you. I said, we see if Level do a book. <laughs> so when the boy's old enough to read, he go, there you go, you got a signed book off. Brilliant. Oh, I'd love to, yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that one. There you go. Fantastic. You, you, people, people are naming themselves after you, naming sons after you. Uh, Waterstones for the book. It's on yeah. Audible as well. It's you can have it on on Kindle. You can listen to it on Audible. Go and buy it from Waterstones or your local book supplier. I 
I really recommend um, Stanford's if you're in London. They do, they do. Um, yeah, I love Stanford's. It's like Where's the that? home of travel literature. It's um, down on Covent Garden, just off Covent Garden. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. That's great, great bookshop. Okay, yeah, Ali um, yeah. What about basically anywhere from anywhere except W. H. Smith? They don't stock it. Do they not? Don't ask me why. Oh, Some mate. sort of political conspiracy theory, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, mate. Yes, I did flip in. Listen to it all. I did. Uh, Generally enjoyed it. Absolutely fantastic read. What about TV series? Yep. So it's it's been eight months in the edit now. Um, we've got a five part series almost complete. We're just literally in the last two days of the edit. Uh, That's just a wait right and now. see. Wait for info. Wait and see. Uh, yeah. More. Watch this space. Watch it your website. Be, uh, just www.levisonwood.com. Sweet. Anything else? All good. I appreciate your time. Thank you so awesome, much. Awesome, mate. Good luck for the future. Cheers. Cool. That's it. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can help continue the podcasts by supporting them on uh, patreon.com, patreon.com forward slash hour, or go on to the website for the podcast, which is charliecharlie1.com and hit become a patron. It'll take you through to the link, take you through to the website, Patreon, and you can, uh, you can sign up to be a patron. You get certain perks, like you get to listen to the podcasts 24 hours before anyone else gets them. Not 24 hours, normally the day before. It can be up to 24 hours before. And uh, also you get money off the online shop where the merchandise is and we sell the Green Beret coffee and all the rest of it. Plus, you get access to certain competitions. All the competitions now. All the freebies get given to the Patreon supporters now, I think. I think that's the case, just to reward them because they are fantastic and help us continue to keep going. As do the sponsors. Just a reminder, Westway Nissan sponsored us today. Westwaynissan.co.uk, the UK's largest Nissan dealership, giving up to 20% off purchases for ex-military or serving military personnel. Also, a Rugby for Heroes, rugbyforheroes.org, uh, organising events to raise money for military charities. The next event is on the 10th and 11th of May at the Old Lemontonians Rugby Football Club. I'll be there getting smashed in rugby on the Saturday and in alcohol on the Saturday evening. I'll see you there. Um, thank you to Rugby Heroes. They're also on social media, Rugby Number 4 Heroes, so give them a follow. And finally, last but not least, Team Rubicon UK. TeamRubiconUK.org. If you're able to donate to them, please do so. If you want to volunteer, become a prestigious grey shirt and res- respond deploy overseas or in the uk to disasters where people need assistance then you can do that by going online and registering teamrubiconuk.org thank you to the sponsors thank you to the listeners thank you to sam and thank you to my patreon supporters until the next time out